You can turn your books in your Bibles, <laughs> in your books, in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. Uh, we're looking at a, a portion of scripture in Romans 11, God's purpose for the Jew and the Gentile. And uh, I want us to, uh, you can follow along as I read uh, for us, uh, beginning in verse uh, 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Speaking of Israel, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, engrafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you by lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Uh, this morning, as we look at this text of Scripture, it's, it's one of the more um, difficult texts to uh, help us understand. So we ask the Lord to do that this morning. But we've been looking at this series on God's purpose for the Jew and the Gentile. And uh, we've looked at, so far in verses 1 to 10, we saw where it involves the grace of God. It involves God's saving grace. Verse 1, he says, I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am in Israel. He goes on to give the example that he himself is saved as a Jew. And so God must not be beyond saving Jews. And uh, it involves this, uh, this selecting grace. And Paul uses the example of himself. He uses the example of Elijah and that how God always has a remnant of believers. Um, and so it was an important time as we went through that that we saw that it, it's the, God, the grace of God that saves us. And if it wasn't for God's grace, we wouldn't be saved. And then in verse 11, he talks about this, begins this series on grafting. And um, he gives the reason why these, gives this illustration of this olive tree and uh, of dough. But he gives the reason that Israel stumbled in their unbelief, but they didn't fall. They didn't fall out of the game. They're just on the sidelines, I guess is the way to, to think of it. And so he says, did they stumble in order that they may fall in verse 11? In other words, is God done with Israel as a people? And he says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, their rejection of the Messiah specifically, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So you have to understand here that God has a purpose in all these things. He is sovereign over all this. So God came to the Jews as his people. He chose them. The Old Testament t 
tells us that. He set his love upon them, not because there was anything good in them, but because he wanted to. And he called Israel his people. And he allowed Israel to be blessed with certain things, as we'll see a little later. But Israel rejected that. They rejected the Messiah. They, re, they, they turned away from God in disobedience. And so God gave them what you might call a spiritual timeout. But even that has a purpose. And there are those around today that believe that, well, Israel's done with. There's, you don't even have to worry about Israel. It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter anymore. And uh, the church has replaced Israel. And we reject that teaching. It's not biblical. And so we're going to delve into a little bit about that today. But when we looked at this grafting of God last week, we saw that the reason for it was because the people of Israel refused to come to Christ for salvation. And remember, the, in John chapter 1 even, it says that Christ went to his own first and they rejected him. And so God said, okay, you don't want to play ball? I'll, I'll go play ball with somebody else for a while. And so he grafted in, he brought in the Gentiles. Now remember, before this time, the Gentiles had little access to God. It was the Jews who worshipped God through the temple sacrifices and all that. The, the Gentiles were on the outside of all that. And so the results of this, when God grafted in this, this uh, new people, the Gentiles was basically he wanted Israel to be jealous of this new people who were being brought into, you might just say, his presence. Because up until now, they thought, hey, we're God's chosen people. And they grew a little conceited in that, a little prideful in that. And up to that point, they could, the only ones who went into the temple and sacrificed and do things like that, the, the Gentiles had little or no access to God whatsoever. And now Jesus, in Christ today, John 10, he is the door. And so the Gentiles are no longer cast out, but we're allowed to come before God because of the sacrifice of Christ. We're allowed to enter that holiest of place. And so into that perfect presence of God. And he wanted to remind the Gentiles that we shouldn't boast in verses 18 to 24. And so you have the Jews who were God's special people. They were entrusted with all these blessings from God. And yet, on the other hand, they rejected it. So God said, all right, I'm going to go reach out to the Gentiles. Well, in the Jewish mindset, that was a hard thing to comprehend. And so when they saw God reaching out to them, the Gentiles, the Jews looked at that and they, they grew jealous. And ultimately, that jealousy will cause them to return to God and the Savior. And so we'll, we'll look at that as we go on here. But I wanted to just give you some, and these aren't even, I don't think they're, um, I don't know if they're up on the screen or not. But I wanted you to give some uh, practical application of the application or the illustration we looked at last week with this olive tree. Because when you have an olive tree and then you have other branches being grafted in and, you know, uh, the Gentiles are the wild the wild uh, branch that's brought in to, to Israel. And so I wanted to just list seven things here that I found for us. And first of all, they're very practical, and you can just write them down if they're up there on the screen. Uh, there, there's only one people of God. 
All right? Um, now, we know that there's Jew and Gentile, all right? But remember, when we come to faith in Christ, what happens? We're grafted into God's people. We become spiritually part of that. And see, that's the obvious point of this olive tree illustration that we went over last week. Um, this is really prophesying a future day in the nation of Israel of God's blessing. Abraham was presented, remember, as the father of all who were saved. Father Abraham, right? And since they're all saved as he was, he is this representative of the root of the tree. Obviously, it's we're founded in, in Christ and in all this. But those who are, are saved, whether they're Jews or Gentile, are saved only by believing God, obeying God, as he did, and, and thus are part of this olive tree. So there's only one people. Get out of your, your, your mind that there's, there's two groups. You know, there's sometimes, uh, even after Jews come to Christ, you know, they, they kind of continue to practice their traditions, which is fine. But we also have to remember that we're all one in the body of Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. And so that's a practical application, number one. Number two, the people of God must and will bear fruit. And he talks about in the text we read last week that if the branches don't bear fruit, they're going to be cut off. All right, The fruit that they weren't bearing was their belief. It says they were cut off because of their unbelief. And here we have believing Gentiles being grafted into this Jewish tree by faith. It tells us in verse 20. It says that is true that they were, they were broken off so that we could be grafted in. Verse 20 says they were broken off because of what? Their unbelief. But you, Gentiles, stand fast through faith. Through faith. By faith. Um, that's how we're saved. And so unbelief is really an expression of fruitlessness, if you stop and think about it. Somebody who is not a believer can't bear fruit in the eyes of the Lord. And faith is really the the first of all the fruits that God uh, blesses us with. Now, in the Old Testament, if you look for references to Israel as an olive tree, basically there's just two in Romans 11 and Roman, or in Hosea 14. And in Romans 11, verse 16, it says this. I'll just read it for you. And this has to do with not having fruitfulness in your life. The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with fruit beautiful in form. But with the roar of a mighty storm, he sent he will uh, set it on fire and its branches will be broken. Well, why would this tree be destroyed by fire and its branches broken? Well, the next verse explains, because the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done evil. They were not fruitful. Their lives didn't bear any fruit. They were not believing. Maybe that's what Paul was referring to here in Romans 11. And even in Hosea 4.6, uh, it's the only other that, uh, verse that applies the olive tree illustration to the Jewish nation. 
Um, But that verse really looks forward to the future day of God blessing Israel. His Israel's splendor will be like an olive tree, his fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. And what this all means, basically, is that God requires fruitfulness from his people. In fact, without fruitfulness, there's no way to claim that we are his people. Isn't that what Jesus taught in John 15? Remember that illustration where he says, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, trims, cleans, so that it will be even more fruitful. And he gives the illustration, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. It doesn't say, well, maybe. It says he will. And this is my, to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. See, the vine illustration is more prominent than the olive tree in the Old Testament when you stop and think about it. And so one thing he wants us to see is that, you know what, because of their unbelief, because of their fruitlessness, Israel was set aside, and the same thing can happen to us as believers. In in our own lives, we should have fruitfulness. And and don't think of of this as losing your salvation. He's not saying that. He's just saying, my hand of blessing is is not going to be upon you, Israel, if you're not going to believe my word, if you're not going to follow my word. Well, the third thing here also is that this illustration of this olive tree really gives us the understanding that Gentiles contribute nothing to the salvation process. Absolutely nothing. I mean, that's the whole point of this grafting this wild branch into this tree. Uh, now, the, the point of grafting when in, the, in the secular world, when you look at a tree, is to bring strength and fruitfulness of the shoot to enrich the old tree. But here in Paul's illustration, it's almost entirely in the reverse. The engrafted branches are the Gentiles. And the thrust of his words to them is that, you know what, they're not to boast, if you look at it, it says, they're not to boast over the cut-off branches as if they were valuable themselves. Instead, we are Gentiles are to bear in mind that we do not support the root, he says in verse 18, but the root supports us. So we, we stand, but our standing is by faith and faith alone. And that means we stand only by the grace of God. We have no claim on anything, and we touched on that last week as well. There's no good in any religion that man has come up with, as far as God is concerned. Today, everybody thinks that people are bringing their little piece of the, the puzzle to, to make everything just fine. Some, you know, they, they kind of throw in the, the mix, the yin and the yang. Others have, you know, tribal religions that they contribute to. Maybe wisdom or folk dances, some of them. Americans, basically, they look at bringing democracy or capitalism. And what what Paul is saying is that, you know what, Gentiles are a a wild olive. This is one of the the most worthless of all trees because it doesn't do anything. 
It's not fruitful. And apart from Christ, beloved, that word describes us, doesn't it? Wild. <laughs> we were all wild in our ways before Christ got a hold of our hearts. They're destructive ways. They're ways that don't honor Christ. They don't honor God. And so the only true way is the way of faith in Christ that has come to us through the Jews. Do you remember what Jesus mentioned to the Samaritan woman when he met her? In John chapter 4, verses 19 to 20, she wanted to engage him in kind of a, a debate over which religious tradition uh, was best. The religion of the Samaritans or the religion of the Jews? And Jesus answer, answers her and says, or she answers him and, and says, I can see that you are a prophet. When she said, when Christ told her that she was living in sin. And then she says this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. See, she's saying, which one is better? Jesus answered that although a a time was coming when the place of worship would be irrelevant, (laughs) he says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He wasn't saying that they're equal. He wasn't saying that the Samaritan religions and the Jews' religions were equal. He said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. (laughs) But listen to what he says. He says, we worship what we do know. And then he says this. For salvation is what? From the Jews. The only true religion is the revealed religion which God has given to us through that channel, through that blessing of Judaism. Now, that doesn't mean that all the Jews are saved. Of course, they're not. He's clearly saying that. But he's also clearly saying that Jews are not saved by becoming Gentiles. Rather, it's Gentiles as well as Jews that are saved by becoming true Jews, true spiritual children of Abraham. So the Gentiles, as Gentiles, we have little or nothing to do with our salvation. Fourthly, neither do the Jews having to do with their salvation. I mean, the the Gentiles contribute nothing to salvation, to the process. But what about the Jews? What do they contribute? Didn't we just read that salvation is from or through the Jews? That's different than saying salvation is being Jewish. That word from implies what? A channel. A channel that God is working through. He's working through a divine people. The way of salvation has been made known through the revelation that was given to Israel. Through the kings, through the prophets. Above all, through Christ himself. And the Jews become beneficiaries of that revelation. Not by being Jews or by bringing any measure of spiritual understanding to the table. They benefit only in exactly the same way Gentiles do. 
Which is what? By believing on Christ. By believing on Jesus. He says in verse 20 and verse 23 there in Romans, they were broken off because of unbelief. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Weren't those broken off branches in the Jewish tree called holy? That was the whole thing we talked about in his original use of the root and the branches illustration. In what sense are they holy then? Well, they're set apart to God for his purposes. What were those purposes? Well, first of all, when you think of the Jewish people, the the Jewish people were the receivers of God's law. The prophets in the writings, they were the people that God worked through to give us those things. We received our scriptures through Judaism. They also preserved these. We wouldn't have our Bibles today, especially not our Old Testaments, had not the the Jewish scribes faithfully, meticulously preserved these ancient documents for us. And then you stop and think, well, the earthly line of the Messiah. Who was Jesus a descendant of? He was a descendant of Abraham through the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of King David. Also, God's witnesses to these truths, all these early preachers, including Paul himself, were Jews. See, without a faithful witness to these truths, none of us would have known Jesus, understood the gospel, or even believed. So we need to be reminded that not only as Gentiles did we not add anything to the salvation, but it's only by grace that God used the Jews in the way he did. The fifth thing, too, I just want to leave here as we we move on. Um, The fifth application of this illustration of this tree that we talked about last week was very clearly do not boast. And we hit on this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. It is true that the Jewish branches were broken off so that in God's providence, the gospel would go to the Gentiles. And so the rejection of the Messiah and God's truth was kind of a blessing for us Gentiles. But as Gentiles, we're not to boast. We're only to stand by faith. Because if we don't, we too could be broken off. We too could be set aside. See, if we boast, we're not to boast in anything but the cross. Sixthly, sixth thing here, do not presume on God's favor. Do not presume on God's favor. And this is kind of a, closely follows the warning not to boast. When you stop and think of the word presume, it means assuming that everything is is right between ourselves and God, regardless of what we may believe or what we may not believe or regardless of how we act or how we may not act. The only way that we can prevent or avoid presumption is to obey God's word and pursue righteousness diligently. One commentator says, if we're not following after Jesus Christ in faithful discipleship, we are not his disciples. And if we are not disciples of Christ, then we are not Christians. Because that's what Christians are. 
are disciples of Christ. And the seventh thing here, just quickly, is fear. And we ended on here last week, verse 20, 22. It doesn't mean that we should cower before God, that kind of fear, but it's a reverential awe. It's understanding that God is holy, that we have to respect who he is. We don't just focus on the kindness and goodness and love of God. We also have to remind, be reminded that sin will be punished. And unbelief does not exclude us. Um, and, and unbelief does exclude us, excuse me, from the good tree of salvation. So we, we need to be reminded of these things. Now, when he comes to this, this text um, today, in verse 25, Paul just got done telling us that, you know what, his ministry, even though it was to the Gentiles and not the Jews, his goal was to see many Jews come to faith in Christ. That would make Paul's day. That's what he is doing this for. That's why he you know, is motivated for the love of his brethren. And he says that over and over again in the, in the text that we looked at in the, in the previous weeks. But today I want to look at verse 25 because it not only, this whole purpose of God for the Jew and the Gentile not only includes the grace of God and the grafting in of us into his people, but it also in, involves the guarantee of God. It in, involves the guarantee of God. And if you look at verse 25... He tells us here, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. And so, as we look at these promises that God has given us here, we have to be reminded that Israel's blindness at the present is temporary. It's not something that God permanently blinded Israel. One day, their eyes will be opened to the the person of Jesus Christ, and one day they will be saved. God hasn't forgotten Israel, beloved. Now, he's filling his house now with those who would come to him during the age of grace, during the church age. And you can be reminded of the the, um, parable of Jesus in Luke chapter 14. We read that previously, so we're not going to go there. But where the Father desires his house to be filled. And those who were invited didn't come. That's the Jews. And so what's he do? He goes out and he invites others, the Gentiles. And the house is filled. In the end, we have to realize that God will keep every promise that he's made to Israel. Not one of them will fail. Because if they do fail, then he's not God. And he's not faithful to his word. See, and this is part of this word mystery here. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, lest you get puffed up. He says, I want you to understand this mystery. When you think of the word mystery... Usually we have something in mind that's puzzling or something that's unknown. You know, it's a mystery. One dictionary calls it this, something that has not been or cannot be explained. Something beyond human comprehension. A profound secret, an enigma. But that's not the word that we're looking at here. That's not what this means. In the ancient world, when Paul wrote this, the word mystery was something unknown to most people. But especially revealed to some. And so this was the meaning of the word as used 
in the ancient religions in Paul's time. Um, some of the, the religions had certain rites. And they were, you know, secret societies. You know, today we have the Masons. You know, they have all the secret stuff they do. Well, it's a mystery. The symbols of, of which most people are unaware. We don't understand. They have all weird little handshakes they do and all kinds of crazy stuff. Well, the Apostle Paul uses the word in this way, but with specifically biblical elements. He uses mystery to refer to something that at one time was not known and could not be arrived at by any amount of human reasoning, but now has been revealed to us by God through such an inspired teacher as Paul himself. Charles Hodge says this, he defines it this way, any future event which could be known only by divine revelation is a mystery. And this was an important term for Paul. He uses it quite a bit. Um, Pastor Ironside, who pastored the, the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, he wrote a whole book on the word mystery. Let me I'll read you some of the chapters. The Mysteries of the Kingdom of Heaven. That was on cha- uh, Matthew 13. The Mystery of the Olive Tree. Romans 11. The great mystery of Christ in the church, Ephesians 5. The mystery of piety, 1, Peter 3, or 1 Timothy 3. The mystery of the rapture of the saints, 1 Corinthians 15. The mystery of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians. The mystery of God finished, Revelation 10. And his main point throughout the book was that, you know what? God deals in the area of mystery sometimes. Sometimes we're not going to completely understand everything that God shows us. Deuteronomy 29 says this, 29 says the secret things belong to our God. But they also belong to us. And as they're revealed to us, we will know those mysteries. And so when you think of the word mystery, it's at least a a threefold thing here. And this is in your outline here. First of all, it's a part of Israel is hardened for a limited period of time. This was a mystery. They never understood this was going to happen. Think about it. In the Old Testament, you have God's people. They were chosen by God. They're given the law. They have this relationship with God that nobody else has. They didn't look down the road and say, oh yeah, one day we understand that we're going to kind of fall by the wayside. We're not going to believe. We're actually going to crucify the Messiah that God sends us. And then God's going to raise up these Gentiles and they're going to have the church age. They never saw that. It was just kind of like a, a blip on the thing that they looked over. They couldn't see it. So a part of Israel was hardened for a limited period of time. This is part of this mystery that Paul is talking about. Secondly, it's the salvation of the Gentiles will precede precede the salvation of Israel. In other words, there's going to be so many Gentiles saved before all of Israel was saved. They did not understand that back then. They, they, They couldn't see that. They thought, hey, you know what? We're waiting for, we're God's people. God's going to send a Messiah and then the kingdom. That's it. They missed the whole church age thing. And then in the end that all Israel will eventually be saved. And so when you stop and you you think about this mystery, all right, Paul may have understood these truths through meditating in the Old Testament in light of the gospel, but the word mystery here in Paul's writing indicates that God imparted special revelation to Paul on these matters. That somehow he brought up something 
that nobody ever saw before. And he began to speak on it. Especially that the Jews would go through a partial hardening while the Gentiles would come to salvation. That's why the Jews were so upset at Christ. That's why the Jews were so upset at Paul. Because he didn't go along with their game plan. So this brings us to this specific mystery that Paul was writing about here. Namely, that the mass of Israel will be saved. Well, why is it a mystery? Because it's, it's not something somebody would just deduct on their own and figure out on their own. You don't see anything in Israel that says, oh yeah, they're going to come under the blessing of God. Israel's in a state of unbelief. I mean, all you have to do is read the newspaper and look at what's happening to Israel. Day in and day out. You wouldn't say that they're under God's hand of blessing. Now, ultimately, they're under God's hands of protection. That's why he's not going to just allow them to sit on the sidelines forever. But see, in verse 25 and 26, Paul says something radical. He says, you know, lest you be lifted up in your own, your own eyes there, Gentiles, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. There's a hardening. There's a um, unbelief. Their hearts are hard to the gospel. If you don't believe me, just go try to witness to someone who's of the Jewish faith. They're not open to it. I was talking to uh, Andrew Rappaport, who's a believer, but he's Jewish. His background's Jewish, and he was telling us how there's certain portions of the book of Isaiah that they won't even read. They just skip over it. They don't, they don't want to deal with it. Why? Because it talks about the coming Messiah. <laughs> And it fits exactly who Christ is. So they, they don't include that in their readings. So he says, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. A partial hardening. As opposed to everybody being hardened, right? Because all of us probably know Jews who are uh, completed in Christ. Jews that have come to faith in Christ. But they're not the majority of the Jewish people today. The, the majority of Jewish people today are stuck in unbelief. They reject Christ as Messiah. As a matter of fact, they don't even want to, it, it, it creates anger in them. You know, and, and so there, it's not a hot topic for them to rally around the campfire and discuss. I mean, they'll discuss it with you, but they'll tell you you're totally wrong. And they'll even, you can see their anger come out at times. And so, he says here, he gives us the reason for this. Why did, why did God give this revelation of this mystery, the idea that Israel would be partially hardened and then they would be ultimately saved? Why did he give this revelation? What's the purpose? Well, first of all, he wants us not to be conceited in thinking that Gentile believers have replaced Jewish believers permanently. It goes back to the same old thing about being prideful in our salvation. He says, I don't want you to think that, you know, for one moment that I'm done with them because I'm not. 
Secondly, we should not be conceited in thinking that a Gentile church is the culmination of God's dealings in history. Some theologians believe that. They believe that God put Israel on the shelf, forget it, it doesn't matter anymore. And that's really a, a prideful attitude because Paul is teaching just the opposite. No, one day Israel is coming back into the game. We should, thirdly there, we should not be conceited in thinking that in ourselves we are something special. And I touched on this last week as well. That, beloved, we're all just saved by the grace of God. If we could just get that through our head, that we're just saved by his grace. God didn't look down on heaven and say, oh, oh, I like how that person, you know, speaks or how that guy runs a business. I'll save him. I need him on my team. That's not how it was done. It was done before we were ever even around. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us. He set his love upon us so that we wouldn't be conceited, so that we wouldn't be able to be prideful in our own salvation. Someone, theologian, said that that, that the doctrine of election is one of the most pride-crushing doctrines. It just crushes your pride. I mean, you know, after you understand that God chose you and you begin to feel a little special, well, gee, you know, he chose me. I must be special. Well, no. <laughs> Matter of fact, you were dead in your trespasses and sin when he chose you. There's nothing good in you that he saw that he chose you because he just chose you because he could. Because he wanted to love you. He wanted you to have a relationship with him. And divinely, he set his love upon you. And it, it, and it mirrors the idea that God would choose Israel. Because if you look at Israel, I mean, they were constantly messing up. You know, you don't, when you pick a sports team, you know, I remember in high school when you'd pick teams or you were on the other end and you were getting picked, you know, you didn't want to be on the losing team. You know, you didn't go out there as, a, as the, the big jock and I'm going to pick all the losers, you know. No, you picked the best guys to be on your team. Why? Because you wanted to win. In the same way with the disciples, if you think about it. Look at who, who Christ chose to, to start this whole thing here when he was gone. The disciples. I mean, these guys were just a kind of motley group of guys. That, I mean, we would not pick them today for a startup company to serve on the board. We just wouldn't. I mean, you know, Matthew, he's probably the, the business guy. You know, he's got the tax. But he's probably dishonest at best because that's what they were. And so you, you look at these guys that he picked. They're a bunch of fishermen and simple. And yet, why did he pick them? And that's what they said throughout the book of Acts. They were like, who are these guys? And so we shouldn't be conceited that we're something special. And then fourthly there, we should not be conceited in somehow thinking that other people who are not like us are hopeless. See, this is, a, this is a wonderful application for us as a church. Because so many times we look at people outside of the walls of the church and we almost look at them with disdain. You know, how dare you act that way? Well, they're just acting the way that you acted before you were in Christ, for the most part. Sinful, prideful, arrogant, whatever it might be. List them off. And so... Don't ever grow hopeless 
For those of you who are praying for your relatives or praying for your friends to come to Christ and you're thinking, man, I've been praying so long, I'm just going to give up. No, don't. Because it's right about then that God somehow, he just, you know, he saves that person. And the ironic thing is, is a lot of times it has nothing to do with you. <laughs> I mean, it's just God's sense of humor, right? I mean, you're praying, you're, you're, you know, you're on your knees for years for this person to come to Christ. And then, you know, all of a sudden they call you one day. And, oh, yeah, I'm a believer. Paul, wow. Did you read the track? Now I threw them out, man. I didn't read any of your stuff. See? We had a brother here who came to church for years. We're all praying for his salvation. Him and his wife moved to another church. Guess what? Then a year he gets saved. I'm like, well, it's not fair. It's just not fair, God. What are you doing? But see, that's how God works. See, and it's, it's partially to keep us humble. To keep us at a point of need before God. And so he says this partial hardening has come upon Israel. This is this mystery. This is why. And then he says this, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Or some say the fullness of the number of the Gentiles. This word until is important. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Um, it has to mean that their number is full. That all the elect to be saved from among the Gentile nations are saved and there's no more to be saved. This word means, it does not mean this. This is not an ending after which nothing else should be expected. Rather, one commentator says this, it is an ending of one thing after which something else will happen. In other words, something like, hey, you know what? I'm not going to the store until you cook me dinner. All right, well, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's, it's something's going to happen after something else happens. That's what this, this has in context here. So Paul says a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He's saying almost exactly what Jesus said over in Luke 21, verse 24. He said, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. See, he was thinking of the destruction of Jerusalem there, which happened around 70 AD. He was saying the capital would be in Gentile hands until the end of the times of the Gentiles. See, the reason this is important for us is because look at what people are fighting for over in Israel. What are they fighting for? They're fighting for control of Jerusalem. That's what they're fighting for. So when we see Israel maintaining complete control, we better be ready. <laughs> because the fullness of the times of the Gentiles is, is almost here. Look back at verse 12. Hebrews 11, verse 12. He says, Now if their trespass, their unbelief, means riches for the world, speaking of, of Israel and their unbelief, and then the Gentiles being saved, so Israel would become jealous. 
He says, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, look at what it says, how much more will their full inclusion mean? How much more will their full inclusion mean? See, it's the same idea. The fullness of the Gentiles, that which when the the fullness of the number of Gentiles who are to be saved are redeemed is done, what's that going to do? That's going to usher in the salvation of Israel. The fullness of Israel will ultimately usher in what? The kingdom of God here on earth. So you have the fullness of the Gentiles. And when that's complete, what happens to us as a church? When every Gentile, as far as the the church is concerned, is saved, what happens? Right, we're gone. We're here with a rapture, right? He'll call us home. Well, God then redeems Israel. And when the fullness of Israel is redeemed, that's when the kingdom comes. See, it deals mainly with your your eschatology. And so he says there in verse 26, he says, And in this way all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. Um. If you look over at Acts chapter Acts chapter 15 Acts chapter 15 Look at verse uh, 12 And this kind of this is right after Acts 15, beginning in verse 12. They had this get-together called the Jerusalem Council. And they were discussing various things. But here in verse 12, it says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among who? Among the Gentiles. What's he doing? He's coming back to Jerusalem Council. And they're basically giving testimony about Gentiles who are converting to Christ. And the Jews are going, wow, they're getting saved too. What's going on here? And so they're giving a a testimony here. And in verse 13, it says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so when you stop and you think, what is this? After, after what, Paul? After this, he, or, here in, in uh, Acts 15, verse 16, after this, I will return. Well, after he's taken a people out from among the Gentiles for himself, after that's complete, Then what does he say? 
I will return. All right? This is kind of how this plays out in our end time scenario. We're now in the, the church age. Well, what's going to happen at the end of the church age when all the, the, the church is saved? We're going to be raptured out of here. That begins basically a seven-year period of turmoil here on earth, the tribulation, and all havoc breaks loose. And yet, at the end of that, the, the Word of God says that what Christ returns with us and there's a, there's a period of time here on earth for a thousand years where he rules and he reigns. And prior to that, that's when this salvation of the Jewish nation happens. All Israel has to be all Israel. Back to Romans. Some theologians who are a millennial and they're, they don't believe in a millennium, literal millennium here on earth, um, they would say, well, no, this is just referring to another remnant. But it's really not. It, it, you, you can't read the text thinking that because he's already brought up the remnant. And so here he's saying that all Israel is set in contrast to just partial Israel. He wants us to see that very clearly. In verse 17, that only some of the branches, unbelieving Jews, were broken off. That indicates that there's a a remnant of believing Jews, those not broken off, who will continually exist while the fullness of the Gentiles is being completed. And these are Jews who are being redeemed, who are not part of the the spiritual hardening that has come upon Israel because they rejected the Messiah. That's what it says there in verse 25. If you look at verse 26, this is why Paul is excited at this point. He's been longing to say this. All Israel will be saved. Remember back when he he said, man, if some Gentiles are getting saved, that's good. But ultimately, I want my Jewish brothers and sisters to come to Christ. That's why I'm serving the Lord. This is why I'm doing this. And there's no other way really to interpret this than all Israel means just that, all Israel It's not another remnant. It's set in contrast to that. That's why it says all. As opposed to verse 25 where it says a partial hardening. The time will come when all the nation of Israel, not just some elect Jews from a future remnant, but all as opposed to not all. And the nation itself will be grafted back in. That's the whole point of the analogy of this olive tree. Now, before all Israel was saved, please understand, that doesn't mean that every Jew will be saved. Because some Jews will still be unbelieving. But the nation is of Israel will be saved. And in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 to 38, it says this. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 to 38. 
He says, as I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you and I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. This is what we see happening today. Lands from Jews from everywhere are being gathered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out and I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face. As I enter into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And I shall make you pass under the rod, and I shall bring you into the bond of covenant. And then it says this, And I shall purge from you the rebels. Well, who are the rebels? The unbelievers. And those who transgress against me. And I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So when you stop and you think, those who will be preaching the the 144,000, Revelation 7, other converts, the two witnesses, all those who are going to pass safely under God's judgment rod, they will comprise national Israel at that time. And national Israel will completely be a nation of believers who are ready for the kingdom of the Messiah here on earth. Over in Jeremiah chapter 31 the Lord says this, uh, verse 31, 34, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant with which... I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not, and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I mean, we like to quote those verses, but really that's to, to Israel. I mean, it applies to us indirectly. And so you see here God's sovereign kind of control over all these things. And so all Israel ultimately one day will be saved. Praise the Lord. And then he says this He says, the the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That's that purging out I talked about. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. See, the future salvation of Israel will be a fulfillment of God's promises. And that's what we should look forward to. A couple things here. Israel and the Gentiles are saved in the same way. Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way. How are they saved? They're saved through faith in Christ, the deliverer. That's what he says. The deliverer will come from Zion. 
See, some people teach, well, no, there's two ways of salvation, one for the Gentiles and one for the Jews. No, there's only ever been one way of salvation. Namely, to trust in God's provision of a Savior or a Deliverer. And that Savior, that Deliverer, is none other than Jesus Christ the Lord. See, when the Jews in the Old Testament, they looked forward through their practice of sacrificial offerings and stuff. Those offerings didn't save them. They were just being obedient, looking forward to that final and perfect sacrifice that would bear their sins. I mean, we, on the other hand, living in this age, we what? We look back to Christ. We look back to the Lamb of God. Both Jews and Gentiles are part of the same tree. They're not separate trees. Secondly, the coming of the Deliverer most likely means that all Israel will be saved either just prior to or in connection with the second coming of Christ. That's... Thirdly, the removal of ungodliness from Jacob reminds us that there is no salvation apart from repentance. You know, that's what this ungodliness, unbelief, is referred to here. You're not, you're not saved if there's no repentance from your sin. And that even applies to Israel. Uh, fourthly, the forgiveness of sins is the primary need of every person. That's why in verse 27 of our text, he says, And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We spoke of this last week before communion. It reminds us that salvation is not just some psychological practice we go through of trying to help our self-esteem or whatever, like, Robert Schuller would claim. It's not a matter of adding Jesus to your life so you can have a happy little marriage or a happy little family or a wonderful career. See, salvation meets our fundamental need of, of redemption, of, of being reconciled to a holy God. And that we're reconciled to God through his forgiveness that was met out on the cross of Christ. And then the last thing here is fifthly, the forgiveness of our sins is based on God's covenant provision through Jesus Christ. See, he's referring to of this new covenant. The point is because it's God's covenant. Like I said before, we have little nothing to do with this. Our role is to be obedient, to be fruitful to allow God to use us in any way he sees fit. We're not calling the shots. And so when you stop and you think of this purpose for the Gentiles, the purpose for Israel, they kind of play off of each other. He went to Israel, they rejected him, then he moves on, and the Gentiles were grafted in. That makes Israel jealous. Ultimately, after the Gentiles are saved completely, those who are elect, then Israel is saved. The Lord returns, and the kingdom on earth here begins. I know that's a lot to go through, but next week we'll talk a little bit about the glory of God in verses 28 to 36. And that's really the ultimate... um, 
purpose of, of all this. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you give us to understand it and hopefully just apply a little bit of it to our lives. Lord, we pray now that you would just uh, lead us and guide us throughout this day as we leave here. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would just um, help our mind be that we're out in this world for a purpose, that we're sharing the gospel through our lips and through our lives. And Father, we ask that you would just bless our time, uh, fellowship over in the fellowship hall as well, as well as the VBS meeting. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.